Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Vanity Fair. Emerson! It stops here! I got your Funyuns! Hello and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Richard Lawson. I'm Hilary Busis. And I'm Chris Murphy. And we're here to discuss part one of season four of the HBO show True Detective Night Country. Later on, Finn Bennett, who plays Detective Peter Pryor, is going to stop by and he's going to tell us about starting this new chapter of the True Detective story. Well, to start things off, how do we feel about True Detective being back in general? I feel like this is always me, but I didn't watch the third season, but I did watch the first two seasons. Um, And I really enjoyed the first season. The second season was not uh, my cup of tea. And I think I speak for many people who just sort of wasn't that into it. So I... I'm a little skeptical. I'm not, like, so excited, like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm so happy it's back. But it does occupy a space in my mind, in my heart, and I don't feel like we have many shows like it at this juncture. Well, it makes you think back to, like, the last golden age of TV. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I feel like it was a really trend-setting show, not just in terms of a ton of crime-inspired dramas that came after it, but it was, you know, one of the first limited series that had, like, a big, splashy, like, movie star cast. Um, I think it really set a wave of those into motion. Um, I don't think... It it feels like a weird comparison, but I don't think you get Big Little Lies if you don't have True Detective Mm, Season 1. Yeah, I do remember when that was show, when the first season was announced, being like, wait, it's just... It's a proper miniseries and movie stars are doing it. And that was like a novel yeah. thing. Like, and it's so funny. It didn't funny. happen in, now in it's 2015. Like, yeah, yeah, but like now. Meryl Julia Roberts is the, doing the stars. Yeah, Meryl <laughs> yeah. Streep's on the third season of a TV show. Like, <laughs> you get Julia Roberts yeah. doing a Watergate show that I'm the only person who watched. Uh, yeah, one and a half I watched that. I reviewed it, Hillary. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I think like as a... As a phenomenon, True Detective uh, lives on. If you go back and you rewatch the sort of that first season itself, um, I don't know. I, I rewatched episode one just to prep for 
this. And I think it's I think it's a little emptier than mm, we might remember it being like I yeah. remember agreeing very feeling like Emily Nussbaum and her New Yorker review, which was like famously very harsh on it. I felt mm. like she was like the only person who was kind of getting at the stuff on the show that wasn't great, which was namely, you know, the gratuitous violence the, against the, women. <laughs> the misogyny, yeah. yeah, was a big part. I mean, she had she had a great line um, from this review, uh, which is, I mean, this is me summarizing first that, you know, there's all this philosophical underpinning to the crime stuff. It's like marrying these two different sorts of things. Um, on the other hand, now I'm quoting, you might take a close look at the show's opening credits, which suggest a simpler tale, one about heroic male outlines and close-ups of female asses. The more episodes that go by, the more I'm starting to suspect that those asses tell the real story. <laughs> That's pretty That's good. good. <laughs> Which is really good. Like, yeah. it was basically, you know, there was there was a nagging wife and there were a bunch of naked bodies and there were naked alive girls. Yeah. And, like, those were the varieties of women that you saw in that first season, yeah. as lauded as it was. Yeah. And then, and then I think that Pizzolatto tried to improve on that a bit in the subsequent seasons. I don't know how successfully, but, you know, the, I think the problems of True Detective aside, which are, are certainly real— I do enjoy an elevated genre thing, you know, mm. like like this is a cop procedural, but like it's an HBO version of right. that thing. Yeah. We're going to have high production and, values. Yeah. We're going to have movie stars. We're going to it's not Law and Order SVU. It's going to be a little heady. It's going to be a little, you know. Yeah, there's yeah. going to be something beyond just the crime. Yes. Right. It was the Yellow King in season one and this season. I don't know. We, let's dive into this first episode. Let's get into a part one recap. There's something spooky happening at the Salal Arctic Research Station. A team of researchers have mysteriously vanished. Clothes in that washer stink. It's going to take wet clothes a couple of days to stink that bad. These men disappeared 48 hours ago, at least. At least. But the discovery of an indigenous woman's tongue at the crime scene reignites a cold case that detectives Liz Danvers and Evangeline Navarro worked on. And then they cut out her tongue. They shut her the fuck up. Danvers tries to figure out the connection between the facility and the dead woman and thinks the answer could lie in a parka worn by victims in both cases. What are you looking for? I don't know. Anything that might have belonged to her? A shoe? An earring? A coat? And to add to the mystery, the researchers are found frozen in the ice thanks to the help of a ghost named Travis. Travis. Travis is dead, Rose. I know. We got a mysterious ice monster, maybe. <laughs> I know. This feels, I mean, just based on one episode at least, kind of supernatural. We oh, have a yeah. ghost leading someone to the discovery of bodies. like A one-eyed those, polar bear. All, yeah. those, all those caribou leaping off yeah. the cliff. Yeah, like a suicide mission, those caribou it looked like. But yeah, I uh, I was, the supernatural element, it, it, it's not only supernatural, but it's so tied to sort of the basis of the show, which is indigenous people and white people have taken over. And it seems to be sort of baked into the core like of the themes of the show in a way that I find to be kind of thrilling. It doesn't seem like peppered on like, you know, a polar bear and lost. You know, it feels <laughs> baked into the DNA. It actually makes sense for the show. It actually makes sense for the show in a way that is being interrogated because you got Jodie Foster, who's so good, being kind of racist to her native co-worker, Evangeline Navarro. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's. I I have some trepidation. I, I my hope is that the supernaturally stuff is just trying to create mood and will not actually come to bear on the literal. I, ima- yeah. I imagine but, it's going to be similar yeah. to like a Yellow Jackets, where right. you know they they've been very clear on that show, like 
there is a possible supernatural explanation for things. Everything that could be supernatural could also be explained by, you know, actual, like, non-magical reasons. Events. yeah. Which right. I think is, you know, a, is a smart way to play it. It's maybe, you know, talking out of both sides of your mouth a little bit, but it does also, I think, keep things grounded without kind of destroying the mood. Yeah. Like Rose, the character played by Fiona Shaw, <sighs> like, she seems to have been led to this discovery by the ghost of this man or whoever that he is. But maybe she just saw something, you know, yeah. like like out on the ice and was just like, oh, I'm going to go look and we'll see what that is. You know, I mean, it is a big pile of bodies. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should get to the pile of bodies after we talk about the the crime that led right. them yeah. to be there. I mean, yeah, I will the, say, I will like the pile of bodies is a ridiculous visual. Like I gasped. Yeah. I hope you guys did. No, I, it's, I was like, whoa, they're really like going there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of like grotesquely beautiful. It looked like a renaissance piece. Yeah, I, yeah. I spoke to I spoke to Issa Lopez for our first look at this uh, at this season um, and she called it the corpsicle. <laughs> there you go. Good, good. Oh, good. So just so you know, that's how we should be properly referring the to corpsicle. it. But yeah, we start with an interesting cold open. <laughs> I was going to do get one that. Of those. You did it. You yeah. got it. You <laughs> Where we get the first ind- indication of something supernatural perhaps happening in that the character goes into some sort of seizure and then says she's awake or something. Mm-hmm. She's awake. And then then all of a sudden they're all disappeared and there's a tongue on the ground. Yeah, it's just bros being bros. You thought watching, they were just making a TikTok. You know, making TikToks about sandwiches and watching Ferris Bueller sing yeah. <laughs> uh, Twist and Shout. And then something really scary happens that we don't, that we don't no, but it, it's such a uh, the mood, the mood and vibe. So many TV shows don't have vibes anymore, yeah. and the vibe is so wonderfully established. And then it continues when we get Billie Eilish's song and a real goddamn credit sequence. Yep. Uh, I yep. love that credit sequence; God, it's so good. It so feels good. like the sh- it feels like the song. I know it predates the show. It feels like it was written for it, though, oh, right? So appropriately creepy. And then also when you're like listening to like the words of the song too, it talks about like tongues. There's a yeah. line about a tongue in it. It's like uh, it's so mm-hmm. bury a friend. Yeah, there's a lot it, it feels very sp- the the parallels are spooky yeah for sure. spooky scary and i love spooky scary billy eilish more than sad billy eilish <laughs> and i like the spooky scary mood being sort of be- offset immediately by the arrival of jodie foster's character who is so sort of stern and of the real world and and practical mm-hmm. you know like i think if there is something su- a suggestion of super of the supernatural it would probably take her the longest to accept it right <laughs> yes, of anyone she's here. so she's so tethered to the ground something that I loved, Ree Jody and her partner Kaylee Reese, who plays Evangeline Navarro. Uh, the show actually does subtext. We see, we don't say like, oh, Kaylee Reese, Evangeline Navarro is good at her job. We see her arrest a guy and pick up the phone to be like, I'm actually busy because I'm arresting, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm arresting this drunk maniac of a guy. And she does it like so lickety split, so easy. I was like, oh, I immediately know from watching it that she's a really good cop and mm-hmm. that she is really excellent at what she does. Bitch, you broke my fucking nose. Hey, hey. <laughs> Miss, are you pressing charges? What? Damn right she is. <clears throat> Sir, you're under arrest for assault and battery. And it's so nice to just see that and not be told that. Somebody being like, right. you're really good at your job. Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, between a character ominously saying she's awake, then the Billie Eilish song, the arrival of Danvers and Navarro mm. arresting a domestic abuser, Issa Lopez is announcing pretty early on, this is a story about women and and, and, yes. and the violence perpetrated against them, but from a, a, a woman's perspective. Yeah, which is a really a smart way to put it in dialogue with that first season yeah. of True Detective without, you know... Writing it, like, in plain letters. Yes. Like- <laughs> yeah, it's it's very plain from the beginning that, yeah, we're going... It's, a, it's not just a vibe shift. It's not just that we're moving from Louisiana 
swamps to like the Alaskan tundra. Like we are going to really interrogate that first season from a different perspective and yeah, explore kind of the criticisms against it while making a show that stands on its own, I think, also. Without bludgeoning you over the head with, like, this is the theme. And I think the setting is so interesting because it's this remote town. There's a mine that's been set up, so brought in a lot of outsiders, a lot of white outsiders. I mean, it brings to mind the kind of fracking communities that that sprung up, I believe, in North Dakota or South Dakota, you know, in the last 15 or so years. And you would read reports from those places and how women were treated in those places, and it was not good. But you also have a local population here to contend with and, like— I don't know. How do you guys feel about like the first season of True Detective is in the, the South. It sprawls. They they drive long distances. There are different, many different locations. But here we kind of by nature of the plot are very contained. Mm-hmm. Does it feel small to you guys? I love it, honestly, yeah. because one, it feels true to form. I mean, in Alaska, there are these towns. There was an article recently or actually from a few years ago about Whittier, Alaska, where the whole town lives in one apartment yep. complex, mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. building. Yeah. And you feel that on the show. It takes a little while. We're like, oh, wait, Jodie Foster and her, you know, she's got a young partner or up and comer and then an old guy. And it provides so many baked-in relationships that make the drama, it heightens the drama. Yeah, the small, the con- the small town feel is is nice. Like, you know, when she slams on her brakes and there's like that drunk lady and it's like, oh, that's Stacy. Like, she's <laughs> right. the town drunk. <laughs> and someone from yells from the window, she's doing it again, you know. Um, I thought it was an interesting, narr- I mean, kind of on those lines, it's an interesting narrative choice. So in, in, normally in the kind of cliched, cop movie where people are partnered up, they don't know each other and they have to get to know one another. But here it's clear that Danvers and Navarro have a backstory. And I think that's, I don't know, I kind of like, it feels like this first episode is setting up not only the central mystery, but there are like personal mysteries to these characters, things alluded to Mm -hmm. that I'm I'm curious to see unpacked. Yeah, for me, it just raises the stakes. Also because something about Night Country and something that's so great, you think Night Country is going to be so dark, but the snow, it's so expansive, it looks expansive. The snow really widens and just... I feel, like I've, I feel like I've said this already, but thank goodness for a show that takes place at night, but I can actually tell what is because going on. Because the snow yeah. gleams. Yeah. Thank yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> thank yeah. God it is lit. <laughs> we can see the people. You did the first look, Hillary, like you mentioned, and it was filmed in Iceland, right? Mm-hmm. It was filmed in Iceland over the course of several months. Um, it must it have was, been miserable. <laughs> so cool. I... I cannot imagine. It must have been so... I mean, you know, they're not outside all the time. Mm -hmm. There are scenes that take place on a soundstage or whatever. But yeah, it's a lot of nighttime exterior. Like, it's actually minus, like, 50 degrees or whatever in real life. Like, I mean, I guess it means that you don't have to do as much acting. Um, Right, right, right. (laughs) But it does seem like a tough experience. Although, yeah, it it would contribute to the performance. I think that, you know, when the cast is cloistered like that, when kind of all they have is each other, then, yeah, there's there's definitely, I think, a bond that develops and something that you can really see on screen because mm-hmm. it does feel like, you know, these are residents of a small town because they kind of are. Like, that's what a production is. Yeah. And the night setting is so interesting in that, like, I felt already in just one episode, like, very temporarily displaced. Like, when Danvers gets the call that her daughter, stepdaughter, Le- Leah, has been— or some uh, some other kid's mother is like, you need to come now. I was like, but it's like midnight. Shouldn't these teenagers be asleep? And it's like, no, it could very easily be 3, 3 p.m. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, and I, I like that the show doesn't go to a ton, or so far anyway, doesn't go to a ton of pains to like 
be like, it's now noon, you know, yeah. <laughs> like it kind of wants us lost in that, I think. Yeah, it's like being inside of a casino. There's like no right. clocks. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I will say based on that, and maybe I'm looking too much for like lesbian foreshadowing because I feel like the show has been described as like the lesbian true detective, you know, yeah. Like, yeah. and whatnot. But I was like, oh, my gosh, like I was sort of ready for Jodie Foster's character, Liz Danvers, to be mm-hmm. maybe queer. But then we get the daughter being queer, clearly. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that's really that's really interesting to it kept sort of subverting my expectations in that way. And I keep looking for little breadcrumbs of mm-hmm. maybe, maybe this is queer. And then um, we see Navarro, like, having sex with that ran- that guy who seemed mm-hmm. really fun. I was like, okay, maybe she's not the queer character. But then that sex scene I thought was so interesting because it seemed so about power for her, more than about pleasure. Yeah. And that's what I picked up on. Like, it, not that she wasn't having fun and wasn't experiencing p- pleasure, but it was such a power dynamic of her you know, um, Navarro being a woman and taking over. And that feels like that feels like a statement, too, based on, you know, how many sex scenes we've seen, especially in prestige shows like this, where, you know, it is just about it's it's prurient, prurient. Sorry, I can't talk. Um, (laughs) It's it's salacious. It's, you know, about like a naked woman, like for the sake of there being a naked woman. And this does feel like a response to that. Yeah, for sure. I think there are plenty of scenes of troubled, be they cops or soldiers, men, having sort of like emotionless, you know, mechanical mm, sex. Yeah. And like in this case, we get the opposite. And then and it's the guy who runs the diner or whatever, like or the bar who seems kind of sweet and like, yeah. want, you know, and I think that that's a good and interesting. Like just let shift. him like give you a toothbrush. Exactly. Like. A yeah. SpongeBob toothbrush even. Yeah. And then, of course, that guy <laughs> employs her sister because the town is so small. Right. Right. Her very her seemingly very troubled sister, mm-hmm. which, you know, adds a, yet another psychological element. Yeah, to well, this. You, you see that. And that is a ticking time bomb on a show like this. I don't want I don't want to read <laughs> yeah, too much. You don't think it's there just just for like window dressing? You know, you know? No, she's. I think I think that the emotionally troubled sister is going to wind up being just fine. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. <laughs> Thank well, God. We, we can we can have that sorted. That's good. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I think that this this episode is setting up a really interesting dynamic between men and women on the show. Obviously, Navarro. Part of her her anger toward the person she arrests, maybe her anger in sex, is that she has this cold case from six years ago mm-hmm. that she just cannot shake because of its incredibly violent nature. A native woman, like, horribly mistreated. Um, tongue cut out. Tongue cut yeah. out, which is why, you know, maybe, okay, is this the same tongue, you know, et cetera. We, uh, we don't know, but, like, mm-hmm. it, it would seem so. And I thought it was really interesting. We didn't talk yet about Hank Pryor, the John Hawks character. Mm-hmm. Where he has this case file, but he, for whatever reason, doesn't want Danvers to have it. So I think already the, this show is being like, there is a lot of conspiracy or some, or or, or at the very least, men protecting other men. Which yeah. feel, also feels very true detective Like, right. this goes all the way to the top. Yeah. Right, exactly. Or, yeah, or, or conversely, how deep does it go? Yeah. How deep know? does it go? I, yeah. yeah, I find that to be really interesting. I think... The show, without sort of making the blatant statement like women of color when they're kidnapped and they're murdered and whatnot, people don't care as much as when white women, white people, Mm -hmm. white men are kidnapped. We see that, you know, we don't even know if these men, at least for most of the episode, if they're missing or if they're out on expedition or if they're dead. But the whole town is a flutter or Jody and her team is a flutter uh, to find these white men. Whereas, you know, this native woman, she's brutally murdered, stabbed 32 times. That case can just go cold because of, you know, how society treats women of color. I think it's, I think that's going to be a pretty important dynamic that's going to be explored from multiple angles, but it is laid pretty bare. And also something, you know, very much based on fact, like it's been getting more attention recently, but like missing and murdered indigenous women is, you know, its own like 
genre of case, like yeah. because there are, this happens so frequently to so many people and so few of them are found or like answers are found about what happened to them that, yeah, it, it can kind of sustain its own entire yeah subset of so, crime of crime when yeah. you talk to lopez did she say like that, that that was very deliberate in the in the creation of it yeah yeah well and actually i mean this is <laughs> it's it's sort of funny i think that it's something that media started to pay more attention to and then uh art also started mm-hmm. to pay more attention to because you know you look at like the work of taylor sheridan like there have been more like missing and murdered indigenous women stories yeah uh, i think yeah. in you know the past five years even um and isa lopez acknowledged that and was like now you know it's almost becoming a cliche but yeah it was it was important to her to yeah uh, incorporate that i think i think that once you it's funny also um originally navarro was written to be latina oh okay um and she changed her to be indigenous or to be a half indigenous person once she really started digging into alaska and was like oh i can't i can't set a story here without having a like a real native component without like actually digging into native stories um mm. you know even though she herself is not but yeah so the mystery itself um while i'm talking about my interview with Lisa lopez i should get into this so mm-hmm. it is also based in uh some a couple of real life still unsolved mysteries like oh. the sort the sorts of things that are on the show unsolved mysteries um historical very mysterious incidents one of them is the mary celeste which was an american ship that drifted ashore and the entire crew had apparently disappeared. Like, they had left behind their food and their shoes were, like, next to their beds or whatever. Like, it is mm. totally—it seemed as though not like the crew had been killed and thrown overboard, yeah. but they just disappeared. Disappeared. They just into vanished. The... Oh, like, like, like Roanoke Colony Basically. Stuff. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. And the other one um, was more recent in the, in the 1900s at some point. Um, it's called the—I can't— pronounce things in Russian, but it's called the Dietlov Pass incident. Oh, yes. I've heard yeah. about this. Yeah. So okay, I have not heard about this. So nine nine Russian hikers go out into the wilderness. Like, young, just like young guys, right? Yeah, young yeah. guys just yeah. like going on a hike. They abandoned their campsite for some reason. They all froze to death like nearby, looked terrified, totally unclear what happened to them. They're just like all dead. There's no easy explanation for what happened. Or do they look like a Renaissance painting? Like in this? Yeah. <laughs> they, are not, yes. they are not all frozen, I think, in one big, in one disgusting, <laughs> like, yeah. Dante-esque <laughs> lump. But in recent years, the Dialov past incident has been potentially explained by scientists who thinks that maybe there was an avalanche that either they were looking at or caught in. Oh, God. Oh, oh that okay. makes sense. Okay. That. But they're not... They're, these guys weren't in the mountains. No, no they're so. in the middle of nowhere. They're in the middle right. of the tundra. Yeah. And they were safely ho- warm inside. Yeah. Yes. Well, you can. she woke up. You, you can, like, breathe easy knowing that I don't think an avalanche is going to be the answer because yeah. Issa Lopez was like, I think that's bullshit. That's bullshit. Okay. Like, that's not what happened. It doesn't explain yeah. everything. Yeah. It can't be true. Oh, um, but, gosh. yeah, these these are two, you know, pre-existing mysteries that inspired the show. I suggest reading up on them. They're, like, very wild, very spooky as spooky as uh, bury a friend. Oh, I can't. I can't read up of them before after watching this show and then go to sleep <laughs> at night. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I know. It's work. like when I used to watch Walking Dead every Sunday night. I would have horrible nightmares, and I was like, "Why do I keep having nightmares?" And it was like, "Oh, because you're watching the zombie show right before you go to sleep." Yeah, <laughs> that's a mystery that you solved. <laughs> I did, and I stopped watching it. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I. The more we talk about it, like, and and you know, bringing in those two real world creepy incidents, like. I like this show in its fourth iteration making a turn 
into horror, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. kind of what this feels like. I mean, if we have some ghost guy doing a weird dance out on the <laughs> on the tundra or whatever, and this a guy who, who appears to be an actual ghost, right, yeah. right, yeah, and this, yeah. walking around in ice, yeah. Yeah, and this Hieronymus Bosch painting of dead bodies, like it's like, and I, but there, I don't know, just in general in this episode, the, the way the show's lit and everything, it just it feels. Uh, horror-y, and I, I like that with, while also being a little bit nervous it's going to maybe pursue that those tropes a little too far. Nervous but. in that you don't think it's going to work or in that you personally are going to be scared? Uh, <laughs> pro- maybe both, actually. Uh, <laughs> maybe both. But I think, I don't know, I'm just, I, I think I probably shouldn't think this way when I watch things, but I, I was like, I was worrying about, like, fan reaction. I was yeah. like, are people going to see this and be like, Oh, this isn't the same True Detective. I mean, but but the other three seasons are distinct from one another, so maybe it's not a problem. Totally, and I, I think it yeah. is because yeah, it's it's got the essential. With the, Navarro and uh, and Danvers have not you know officially started working yet, no. together yet. So we're it's assuming gonna we're assuming they will. It's probably yeah. going to happen. I think something, and this might be a horror trope, but it sort of didn't feel horror to me, and I appreciated um, sort of the flashback element mm, of yeah. it. I think was I think they're very well done. I think it's so. I love that there is it. one timeline and that we get occasional <laughs> flashbacks, but we are not jumping between two of them. I know, because they could easily be like, here's Navarro six years ago investigating yeah. this case. And mm-hmm. I'm so, yeah, I'm, I'm very thrilled that we are getting one story, one linear chronological story. <laughs> what a concept. But it is really, it is really great. And the flashbacks really, I mean, the one of Navarro in war, I was like, oh my God, it was so... so oh, yeah. Crazy. yeah. It's really sort of intense and evocative and it's a good peppering through the mm-hmm. through the episode. Although, I mean, if if we're going to talk about tropes, like Navarro being a vet does feel sort of done, on like sort of on the nose in the same way that, you know, we don't know for sure if Jodie Foster had a family that, you know, she no longer has. But we see her, you know, we hear a child's voice whisper she's awake. We see the polar bear in the street. It seems as though Jodie had, you know, maybe maybe there was a dead child involved, maybe. Yeah. And I mean, I will say once her daughter, Leah, when she's in the car, is like, that First, me being an asshole, I was like, that girl does not look like Jodie Foster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it's revealed, it's like, oh, it's not her kid. Yeah, you know? but it yeah. seems like there is a biological child that she no longer has. And, like, yeah. I, can under, I, I can understand that as, you know, using that for a character, making, giving them, like, something dark in their past. If they're a woman, like, it is likely that this is going to be the thing that you saddle them with. I find—it's uh, a little cliched for me. I sort of mm-hmm. wish that— I, I don't know. It feels a little easy. But the yeah. whole family dynamic, I, I guess. But it the didn't family feel dynamic that. is is weird. It's so whatever weird, it whatever it is, because it's like she's got a son with her, uh, with Hank or whatever. I, I think that's just his son. That's though. his. But it's prop. But I don't know yet. Why do you <laughs> yeah. think? Wait, why do you think that Peter is Jodie Foster's son? Peter, uh, just the way they interact. The way they interact, yeah. it feels very uh, familial to me. Yeah, I feel with Peter. Maybe I'm just mayor of Easttown Pill, but I, I'm worried about him. Oh, really? Cute, he's got the real cute, Evan Peter vibe. The, the cute Evan young Peters. cop. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know if he's going to meet a good end, uh, but we'll see. But yeah, no, I, I think you're right, Chris. I think I couldn't quite decide watching the episode if these dynamics were deliberately a little confusing or if I was maybe a little missing something in the writing. Yeah. But like we, the audience, I, I think it's very interesting that there is no audience surrogate. Mm-hmm. We are entering a fully contained world where everyone yes. already knows each other, totally. and the only mystery is which is, is also it, refreshing. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean it's, like, it's different. Yeah, like I'm who hopped off the train and is in the town. Like the I love the movie Insomnia, where Al Pacino goes to Alaska to solve a murder and ends up committing one. Uh, that's a great movie, but like 
I think this would have felt like a rehash of that in some ways. And and now it's the, the only real kind of unknown people in some ways to to anyone in this community are these research guys. Are these right. nerdy yeah. scientists? So, yes. so these complete strangers are are the dead ones. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. Should we talk about the scientists at all? Yeah. Um, I love yeah. the one who's named Ralph Emerson. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, they yeah. have some great names. Um, like very, w. Like, w. Emerson. I'm sort of wondering, like, how Clark that Emerson. Yeah, yeah, how that how that bears on. Uh, if it would be funny if it were like lost and they were all just named like John Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, we do have Ralph Emerson. Yeah, we have our Ralph Emerson. I'm sure that the other names in there uh, are. Clues. References of to some kind, yeah. Um, but yeah, we don't really know what they were doing there. We we learned that some of them are geophysicists, geologists, paleomicrobiology is mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess they're looking for things under the ice. Which, yeah. like, I would, you know, then are we also telling a climate story? Like, yeah. is this right. like there the ice go. is melting and yeah. stuff that should have stayed in there is now coming out? Yeah. Well, they talk about that under yeah. the tundra. All the all these diseases yeah. that, that 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 if climate change continues, the tundra could thaw, and then we're having, like, diseases we haven't seen in hundreds of years. I didn't, uh, <laughs> we're all going to get dinosaur yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh, I had that in 93 when I saw Jurassic Park on opening day. <laughs> but, you know, you're totally right, though, that there is definitely a climate thing, because we have the miners, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. that seems, and Annie was a, she was a protester, she yeah. was an activist. We learned yes. that in this episode that she it was... It doesn't take, a, it maybe doesn't take a genius to connect these things. Yeah. I think it's interesting that Danvers says, kind of in, in her tone, kind of sides with the minors on that. She was like, she was really annoying, but no one deserves, you know, what yeah. happened. Well, I think that's a good, the the dampers of it all, and I, I sort of glibly called her racist at the very beginning, but I do think there is a very interesting and maybe even true to form sort of racial animus between Danvers and Navarro, where she's not like explicitly like a racist, but she clearly has very sort of, rude opinions about yeah. native people and is unafraid to which is interesting if one of them is her step is her yeah. stepdaughter is her, or yeah, yeah she's raising one yeah. uh, effectively um that i think will be i'm like keeping an eye on that because i do think it complicates her character from being just like a tough broad you know police lady detective where she clearly has relationships with native people and has opinions and says rude things about shouldn't you be shuck at a caribou or whatever she says but also is clearly embedded in that community in some way via what seems to be her daughter, stepdaughter. Yeah, yeah and it and it, com- it makes, you know, Danvers seem, we, I feel like we get a better sense of who Danvers is as a personality from this first episode than Navarro, who is still kind of coming to the forefront some. But like, you know, yeah, Danvers is clearly complicated. She's clearly, you know, the cliche of like, you know, she's a good cop, but like her personal life is a mess is yeah. also is like seems kind of apparent Very here, true. too. Yeah. Um, but it seems, yeah, she's she's complicated maybe in in interesting ways. But I do. I like her. And Jody, uh, Jody's doing some great work. For I me. love I love her versus the Ferris Bueller TV. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to turn that off. Really. I feel like I have been in that situation. D- d- does does Peter say we tried to put a, or one of the cops says we tried to put a blanket over to dampen the sound? And it's like, why would that have worked? <laughs> I will say back to the cold open, I was so confused. I was like, wait, did this all happen in the three minutes of the Ferris Bueller clip? But it turns out they're rewatching the clip over and over and over again. It's like a YouTube video. It's not the movie. The ice monster that killed the scientists also broke the TV. As ice monsters are wanted. That's to how you know she means business. And yes, I did say she. Yeah. Well, it's Jennifer Grey from Ferris Bueller, of course. <laughs> She's upset because she got that nose job. Exactly. <laughs> Still Watching will be back in just a moment. And when we return, a conversation with actor Finn Bennett, who plays Peter Pryor. 
We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. It's official. Ennis, Alaska is creepy and very uh, Sixth sense Everybody sees dead people, it seems. They do, yeah. Um, I, I do feel like Travis is kind of a funny name for a ghost. <laughs> like, do you think that's this is like where Travis Birkenstock ended up? <laughs> yeah, actually, that would kind of make sense. Um, but to help us unpack uh, this first episode and the weirdness of Ennis, Alaska, we got a chance to talk to Finn Bennett, who plays Peter Pryor. He obviously is the young detective who Liz Danvers has taken under her wing. Maybe it's her son. We don't. We don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, maybe Finn can shed some light on that. Enjoy our conversation. Hello, Finn Hi. Bennett. Welcome to Still Watching. Hi, Finn. Hi, Hi guys. How are you? Oh, it's uh, so a little great to spooked have you out. <laughs> yeah. Why are you spooked out? Uh, the first up, it's kind of a scary show, Finn. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? <laughs> um, it's really good. Yeah. yeah. I'm, good. Um, I'm I'm curious. Were you a True Detective fan before you got involved with uh, Night Country? Yeah. Yeah. Big True Detective fan, particularly of um, season one. So you can imagine kind of my joy when. Uh, when I found out I was going to be a part of it. What was the process like for you booking the role? How long did the auditions take? How did you find out? So I had the kind of unusual process of casting. And I mean, Issa has this ability to find people. And Issa had watched a series that I had done over here in the UK called Kiri. And I'd also auditioned for a series that she was doing in the UK, but she, it was a different block. So anyway, when she called me up in, uh, I guess like April 2022 and said, um, I've got something and I want you to audition for it. I was like, oh, brilliant. You shooting like something for the BBC? And she was like, no, it's True Detective HBO. I was like, well, I'll never get it. Um, and um, so so we did a meeting. The two, the two of us had a meeting and um, I read some stuff for her and we talked over the character and stuff. And then she gave me COVID. Um, so oh. I couldn't, I couldn't go in for that. Yeah, no, I, and now she's giving me the part as like a kind of um, yeah. Like, that's a that's a that. real uh, twist. Well, it's like a night a yeah, night country esque yeah. twist that she gives you. COVID. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very it's very in keeping with the show. Um, but she, I, so I couldn't go in to do the second meeting. 
which meant I had to do it with my friend, uh, who's a brilliant actor, and he, he kind of understood the, the gravity of the situation. So we kind of worked away for about three hours on, on these two scenes. We sent them in. Uh, Issa said, you know, like, look, I love them, but we don't know what HBO are going to say. And, and yeah, here we are. So, <laughs> so it worked out okay. It all worked out, even the COVID of it all. <laughs> I guess I was like, a good, that was a good insurance policy for HBO going into the show. <laughs> well, yeah, you weren't going to get it again right away. <laughs> but I did. I did. I did again. <laughs> no, you did while shooting. The, <laughs> I did. While shooting yeah, in I, Iceland? Yes, in Iceland. Wow. Yeah, I had one I had one week left and um and uh I, I called you so up in the morning, I said, So I've tested positive. Uh, and yeah. That happened. Um but yeah, so obviously I feel like we're saying we're talking about this to, to everybody that we interview who is not Jodie Foster. You get to act with Jodie Foster. That feels like a pretty a pretty exciting opportunity. Yeah, pretty um cool. tell us yeah, tell us about uh about meeting her and you know, the first thing you guys shot together. I, I met Jodie, uh, I was like coming out of a fitting and she was like going in and that, you know, you have the kind of whole, her legend among the people, everyone in that building is kind of this huge thing. And I was really terrified about being her, but you, you meet this incredibly friendly, warm, patient, understanding person and, um, and you kind of, all the kind of fear, I mean, the, everything you were worried about kind of slips away. And when you're in that scene, she's there with you. And she's not, she, she never, once the camera's off her, it's not like she stops doing her job. You know, she's, she's giving you everything while you're in the, in the scene with her, which is um, kind of amazing for someone. She really doesn't have to do that for me, <laughs> but she did. And yeah, we, and I mean, I think the kind of relationship we developed on screen, I'm really, really proud of. And I'm also kind of selfishly proud of myself uh, for, you know, acting with Jodie Foster. That's, uh, you should be proud. That's a very cool thing. Well, yeah, your, yeah your, your relationship with her uh, is is very interesting and seems very close. So close that so while close. watching the first episode, Chris thought that Peter was uh, Danvers' son. Which I th- think is maybe fair because in yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's clear that well, John Hawks, Hank, Peter, and Liz Danvers, right? They all sort of know each other in a in a intimate ways. Danvers um, and Hank have their own relationship. Hank and Peter. Hank is Peter's dad, but I for a big chunk of the episode thought that they were all a little family <laughs> a little dysfunctional I family i love that take on it it's so sweet and they're all in police like yeah. they're yeah they're just a police family <laughs> yeah yeah they really run that town um i love that take on it but no i guess but i guess you could say you know in some aspects um there is a maternal element to danvers and prior's related pizza prior's relationship so you know Chris, you were, yeah, it's a fair point. Like, thank you, yeah. thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. I was wrong, but you know, I, <laughs> but it does, the relationship between um, Danvers and Pete does definitely have sort of a maternal element of her sort of shaping him to be this, you know, amazing true detective, if you, if you will. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very I did, nice, I yeah. see what you did there. Yeah. I did, thank you, thank you. I did uh, talk to Issa um, before the show uh, for like a preview piece and she, the way that she described Peter is kind of like a, a Clarice Starling figure um, before, you know, she gets, you know, loses her, her innocence. Is that something that ever came up on set between you? Yes. Um, I mean, specifically the Clarice Starling bit, no, but I think, in terms of his innocence and how earnest he is. And 
ah, how ignorant he is about the world at large. All the all the other characters, the older characters, they all have their kind of emotional baggage. And he's quite um, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. He just kind of leaps into this situation. He just wants to solve the case. He just loves it. Um, and then there's this whole relationship with his family. He's a young dad. And that um, plays a big part in kind of... I, when, when I was reading it, I was always imagining if you put prior in the middle, there's kind of different people pulling him from different angles, his family, his dad, Danvers, the case. And, um, I think, yeah, it's, it's a, there's a great point about, uh, the Clarice styling thing. I would never compare myself to Clarice styling, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, you brought up such an interesting thing in terms of the fact that Peter is this young, you know, dad seems to have a lot of responsibility and also that he's, he's married to a native woman and he's, you know, obviously white. And it feels like the show is setting up a pretty sort of intense dynamic between, you know, the native, um, indigenous people from Alaska and also the white people from Alaska and sort of that tension. And they seem to be at opposite odds with the mind and whatnot. Can you talk a little bit about Peter? Being, you know, yeah, he's um, sort of in the middle of everything. In the middle of everything, right? Yeah, and connected to both sides. That's such a good question, and I mean, it's something I personally um, have had to learn an awful lot about because, it, it, I, I mean, I'm sure there is an indigenous community here where I live in London, but I can't imagine it's very big. So this was kind of a, a whole new world to me. It's, it's shamefully so. It's shamefully, I wish I knew more about it. So I was I was learning all of these things, and I was learning about all of these tensions, and and that came from on the fellow cast from Anna, who plays Kayla, from um, from uh, Izzy or Isabella, sorry, who plays um, who plays Leah from Kaylee, of course. So it was coming from them, but it was also, and I just I just want to mention Peach, who uh, is this guy who I was put in touch with for research who is, he's not actually from Alaska, but he has moved to Alaska. And he has, he's a, he's a white guy with a native wife and they have a little baby and stuff. So I got, I got in contact with Peach or it used to put us in contact. And I was learning all this stuff about them. And it was a big learning process. And I think you try to, it's such a, when you finish a project, and that you know so much more than you did at the start. You just want to go back and do it all again <laughs> and, and how that would have impacted your performance. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's so interesting, though. The There is a real Peter Pryor that you spoke to. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He's not a cop. He is, uh, I believe he's a preacher, um, but really nice guy. And uh, we spoke maybe like once a week on the phone um, for, for like a solid month or something. Wow. I would ask him a bit questions about his family and kind of more bigger questions that were maybe more profound but then at a certain point I just kind of was just like interested in like what did you have for dinner what's your favorite <laughs> music you know like because I, I, I just I'm, this is such like a a, um, a new life to me um, yeah well Alaska seems yeah a world it's a world away from a lot of places but especially a world away from you know urban London <laughs> yeah yeah a, a complete world away and hearing how they would kind of hunt and go out on the land and and all of the customs and practices that he had had to get used to being, I suppose, a visitor in in his partner's world. And yeah, so, so that was really interesting. 
clearly, I mean, it's in the name True Detective Night Country, but you're sort of stuck, you know, many months filming really in darkness for so long with a, a cast that, you know, everyone seems to be so connected in the show, right? You know, it knows each other, is related, is not related. Um, what was it like for the the cast, you know, off screen, you know, when you're not shooting, you, did you hang out? Were you all sort of huddled together in Iceland? How, what Were was that dynamic Were you huddled together like? for warmth? Were you yeah. under a blanket? Dude, so, so I had um, so I was I was in an apartment, uh, like in an apartment complex, and I could go out onto. I had like a little patio outside. I could go out. I could wave to Kaylee up here, <laughs> like just around the corner. That was easy. You could do a little wave to her. Um, we yeah, we were um really really close, and I feel incredibly lucky that I made friends that for kind of no other reason I would have. I have met in any other walk of life. So yeah, we were really close. We were really close and we would go out. I did a lot of eating. Iceland's fantastic food. Um, lots of fish. We did some drinking. We went to movies. We, yeah, you know, like you form a little family and, um, I'm so, I'm so proud and honored to be part of that family. How creepy was it, you know, those first scenes when you're kind of when you're walking into like the abandoned lab and, you know, there's tongues everywhere and, you know, this like how what's that experience? What was that experience like? Salal kind of is just so impressive from even, you know, obviously I've been on like sets before and I've done this kind of stuff. But I think anyone just coming into to Salal or what we made Salal um it would just be so impressed by the scale of the thing. Like it's it's a whole it's a whole building that they've created. And Daniel Taylor and his team did just such like an amazing job of making it so barren and creepy and soulless, I think. And you know, coming into coming into and walking through those rooms, it really sets the sets up the scene nicely. And so obviously this is kind of focused on episode one, but throughout the series you you just see some of the most incredible sets. How, how did you feel looking at the corpsicle for the first time? That's the big reveal at the end of Ooh. this episode. <laughs> yeah, that was really horrible. It was even <laughs> like, like the more you look at it, the kind of more you kind of double take. Like um, seeing that for the first time and also because I'd seen it kind of at varying stages of completion. Mm. Oh, wow. So, so at first you kind of see quite like a mesh of plastic and, and you're like, this isn't good enough. And then it becomes this thing, slowly they add layers and so much time and work goes into, you know, if a guy's hand is like frozen, maybe you can see the kind of like veins pop out where he's like tensing his muscles. It just, all of this stuff is like so incredible and it really pays off when you look at it. Like it just looks great on screen. So, yeah. There seem to be a lot of important details in the opening credits. I know, you know, we can't speculate. We're only on episode one. But is there anything that we should be paying attention to while we're listening to that creepy Billie Eilish song before <laughs> the episode starts? Uh, pay attention to the spirals. Uh, you love that. Yeah, yeah. That's fun. That's um, fun. Yeah, because there's one that Jody stands in the middle when she's looking at the... There's a spiral. Yeah, how, cool, how cool is that? Yeah, yeah it's yeah. so cool. Because I, I obviously was not... Uh, in as nearly as much as Dodie uh, and Katie, but I would come in and watch the scenes that I thought were going to be really cool. So I kind of watched that one from a distance. I was like, oh, loving this. Like it was, a, yeah, you know, um, yeah. So watch out for spirals. Watch out for oranges. Mm. So that's quite a 
it's quite a weird clue, but um, <laughs> watch out for oranges, yeah. God, oranges and spirals. Okay, that's, a, yeah. that's really something um, that we can chew yeah, on. With... And you can get to the bottom of this case in a heartbeat. <laughs> like <that>. right away. <laughs> yeah, Finn, thank yep. you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. Pleasure thank to you talk so to much, Adam. This is, yeah, this is really cool. Yeah. I'm loving this. Thank you so much, guys. Still watching, we'll be back in just a moment. When we return, we will make our predictions on who done it. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. So we're going to, as we did for White Lotus, I believe, we said we, we, we used to predict who's going to die, but now I think we're going to predict who's who done it. Who done it, yeah. yeah. And we're going to try it. to do it every week, and we're going to hold ourselves accountable because... Whoever gets it closest to right, which we'll have to subjectively decide <laughs> at the end, uh, gets a nicey. Yeah. Bought by the other two <laughs> hosts. So. Seems fitting, given the setting. And the uh, Chris. Yeah, did, you, did you guys catch that? It's no. a joke. It's a funny joke we made. <laughs> we can hear you laughing right now. Yeah. Um, Chris, who do you think did it? I'm going to go, I'm going to say, uh, just because I did not like his vibes and I did not like the way that he talked to Miss Liz Danvers, mm-hmm. I think it's Peter Pryor's dad. Hank, is that his Hank. name? Hank yeah. Pryor. Hank Pryor. And by it, we're talking about the scientists. Yeah. I, which seems like, you know, white there on are white two, There are two mysteries. There's there are, Andy Kay also. There's Andy Kay also. Well, I think he's, okay, I, well, I'm going to say he's responsible for both right now okay. because it would be very surprising for him to be responsible for the, for Andy Kay, that makes more sense. You know, I could see that. Um, but I think he's maybe responsible for the murders of the scientists just because I don't know he's got this mail order bride coming I don't know I don't like his vibes I don't like the look about him he seems like a shifty shady character to me my theory about the scientists is something of a Scooby-Doo theory where environmental activists pretended to be ghosts or ghouls to scare them off, and they're going to do the same to the miners. Oh. That's my theory. And for Annie Kay— They they could have gotten away with it if it weren't for for that meddling Danvers. (laughs) This this meddling foster. Um, Yeah, and then Annie Kay, I think— I, I kind of feel you on Hank, too, because the shiftiness about the case file. So. Yeah. Why did he keep that from? Yeah. I he, don't know. Sir, he, uh, he seems to somehow be involved if, if not if he didn't cut out her tongue himself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be more surprising if like Peter was some because he seems like the innocent. Right. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. If, if he has something to do with any of this, um, that, that would be that a would nice. Be a, it would like, be a good twist. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. uh, we would expect him just to be the sweet young cop who yeah. dies. But and I also I don't know. I want to. I, I got I got burned by this during Mayor of Easttown by being like, why is Guy Pierce on this show if he doesn't have anything <laughs> right. to do with the murder? <laughs> right. Um, why is Fiona Shaw on this show if he just she doesn't have anything to do with the murder? That, ooh, oh, that's an interesting question. That is a very good. Question. Like what she, what she, what's her whole deal? <laughs> right, there's right. something weird going on there. There's something weird going on. I don't know Maybe what it's... she could have to do with it, but uh... well, she woke up and then everyone died. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that does it for this episode of Still Watching. As ever, you can find me on social media at Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And you can find me on social media at Christress. You can find me at Hillabuster. This has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Our producer is Emily Elias, and we had production help from Peyton Hayes. We had technical assistance from Gabe Quiroga. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer, and our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. We'll be back next Sunday for part two. Looking forward to seeing you then. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>